Peak Earth. I'm Case Bradford. Thank you for tuning in to this episode with Steve Hendricks. Steve is an author. He wrote a book called The Oldest Cure in the World. It's all about fasting, the history of fasting, the practice, the power, the science. It was an amazing book. I was fascinated by history. The fasting goes all the way back to the medieval times, integrates what we know in, in many religious and spiritual texts. For in combining that with what we're learning through modern science, it's a really amazing tale for something so simple and accessible and free, simply not eating food. It's amazing that our body shifts into this regenerative state and, and all the stories that people share of the healing that has happened. It's what we need right now. It's so important. I myself have experienced great healing through this practice. Steve has as well. He removed something like four different prescriptions he was on through a two-week fast. He had been suffering from deep, dark depression for a long time. And a fast was a tool, a powerful tool that he was able to use to get out that deep dark pit he shares his story in this episode along with much of his wisdom and i really enjoyed our conversation for anyone who does desire to dive deeper into fasting how to learn the skill of being able to fast for multiple days feel free to connect with me i'm happy to share anything that i've learned through my experience and through my study of this topic i i publish another episode with with rob hannah that's a, that's a great one to listen to as well. We dive deep into the practicalities of executing a fast, some of the do's and the don'ts. So that, that's a good one to listen to as well. And as always, I appreciate everyone who, who shares these episodes on social media. It means a lot to me. Dropping a five-star review on Apple or Spotify is really meaningful as well. Thanks for tuning in. Here is Steve Hendrick. All right, I'm here today with Steve Hendricks. How are you today? I'm doing great, Case. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I reached out to you as soon as I finished your book, The Oldest Cure in the World, because it was incredible. It was really good. It reminded me of Michael Pollan's writing. I've, I've read pretty much all his stuff. And, and the way that you wove together the science of fasting with your own personal story, with the history and all these interesting fact, facts about this, this journey that our society has been on, wrapping our minds around this thing we call fasting, really was reminiscent of, of, of Michael Pollan's work. And it I highly recommend anyone who's interested in fasting pick up a copy of this book on either on Audible or on Amazon. It was it was really great. So I would like to start just by saying, great work. Oh, thanks, Case. I really appreciate it. You know, there, there there's been a lot written about fasting, but some of it's frankly wrong. <laughs> a lot of it's really boring, and so and and some of it's kind of shallow and not complete. So I, I wanted to try to, you know, create something that was both at once more comprehensive than what had been out there, combining the history and science and my own experiences with it, as you said. But also I wanted to make it kind of lively and more page turning than a lot of books about fasting had. So uh, I'm glad to hear that in some measure, at least I succeeded a bit. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, I've read seven or eight of different books about fasting and a lot of them do, as you said, come off kind of unapproachable or, or uninteresting. And the history of, of fasting was, was really fascinating to me as, as we think about this thing where it's just, well, we're, we're not eating. And then somehow these amazing consequences or the way I look at it is our body kind of shifts into this new gear at some point. And I'm, I'm really curious how you got started just into the 
fasting journey yourself? And then how did that evolve into a book? Yeah. So, you know, I, I first came to fasting for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons was a reason a lot of people come to fasting, which is uh, I had started putting on weight. I'd been a, a distance runner when I was in college. And then uh, after college, I picked up a knee injury playing um, ultimate Frisbee. And that was the end of my um, uh, my run, my long distance running days anyway. Uh, and little by little, I was putting on pounds each year and I just simply wanted to lose weight. And, you know, you don't eat, you lose weight. It's pretty simple, right? Um, but the other reason, the more sustaining reason and why I've really stuck with fasting over the years was I was interested in fasting's implications for our health. When I first came to it, I was really interested in what fasting, you know, could, could it make us live longer? What could it do for our, our longevity? Um, and I had originally, when I was looking into, well, what's the science say about this? And this was, you know, 20 years ago or more, um, there really wasn't a lot out there about fasting. There was a lot uh, that had been done on caloric restriction, which is just simply eating fewer calories each day than you ordinarily would, but still getting all your nutrients. Um, in every animal species that it's ever been tested in, you know, it just extends the lifespan just marvelously, and they end up being healthier too. It's not a sickly old age hood. You know, you're, you're disease free, or you have at least fewer diseases than you otherwise would have. And these effects uh, in early sort of human studies, we, we haven't followed calorie restricting people for 80 years yet to find out if it's going to extend their lifespan, but it's improving all the biomarkers as well. The problem is it is hellishly hard to do. It's just nearly impossible for most mortals to walk around hungry all day long, which is the way I experienced it, certainly. But in learning about caloric restriction, I then learned about fasting. And, you know, the irony there, of course, is it's the ultimate in caloric restriction, right? Zero calories. On the other hand, your hunger is suppressed because when you burn your fat, the fat's broken down into these ketone bodies, which we use for fuel, and those ketones suppress the hunger hormones. So I thought, well, aha, this is just a wonderful, you know, uh, uh, a wonderful thing uh, that you can, you know, not eat whatsoever, not be hungry, and still gain many of these health benefits um, that are initiated when we give our body a break from eating and when we go without calories. So that's how I got um, into it originally. Um, and then about 10 years ago, I first started writing about fasting um, in an article that I wrote for Harper's Magazine um, at a time when that was sort of just kind of on the front edge of this boom in fasting that we've seen in the last five or 10 years. Um, and it was kind of a miracle that Harper's even took that article because everywhere else that I pitched the article to just kind of looked at me like I was uh, quackish. Um, you know, I was, I was uh, selling snake oil. Um, so, but I, I wrote about that. And ever since then, I have been uh, dabbling and fasting and dabbling in the writing about fasting. Uh, and I ended up writing the book um, now because I finally thought that we had uh, the history of fasting has always been there, um, but we didn't really have enough science of fasting, I thought, to make a compelling story. It's certainly not 10 years ago. A compelling magazine article, sure. A compelling book you know, length, in-depth, that amount of science. I really wasn't seeing that. But the science has just blossomed in the last decade in the most beautiful way. And I thought, well, there's enough here you know, to write a good book about, I hope. Um, and then also my own experiences in fasting had grown. So that's how it all came together. Beautiful. And it is something I, I look at similar to like meditation where 
it was kind of looked at as kind of fringe and, and, you know, nonsensical, not, not too long ago. And now there's a ton of solid science promoting the benefits of meditation and it's really blossomed and, and fasting is right on its heels as, and they're both pretty similar in some weird ways where meditation is like, pause your mind and fasting is like, you know, pause your digestive system and some amazing magic will happen. Yeah. And throughout history, uh, people who have fasted originally fasting was, was done pretty much all over the world as what we would think of now as religion for religious purposes rather than for health purposes. The ancient mind, most ancient peoples didn't segregate, you know, body and mind and soul the way that we do today. So they wouldn't have quite, you know, used that wording, but that's basically what they were doing. They were, they were fasting for religious purposes. And, and what they found was exactly what you're talking about, um, which is that the, the, as we fast, there are physiological changes our uh, blood pressure will drop, our heart rate will slow down, probably our brain waves are changing and so on. This becomes very conducive to meditation. So you do find meditation and fasting throughout history quite often traveling on the same path, uh, being used for uh, mutually reinforcing purposes. Um, so yeah, this is, is nothing new, so to speak. Yeah, it is, it is fascinating how you bring up the links with religion and, and fasting. Do you practice any sort of religion yourself? I do not. I am an atheist and um, have no spiritual life in, in the sense of what um, traditional religion would regard as a spiritual life. I do meditate, um, but I would call that more a psychological or emotional practice than a religious practice. Um, I do feel a very strong affinity with the teachings of Buddhism um, because I find that but but it's more almost from a scientific perspective because they have you know almost a scientific take on here are the teachings we're not telling you you absolutely have to do these why don't you apply them and see if they work in your own life and if they don't throw them out or modify them as you will it's a very um sort of thoughtful look rather than a dogmatic look at things so so you know some people when i tell people that they say oh well that's a spiritual life and i'm like well i don't believe in a spirit so i wouldn't call it that myself if if, if that makes more sense to you then go for it i would i would call it a a psychological and emotional practice we we have similar um path paths then and it's it's fascinating if, if we sort of like you know dial back our understanding of, of religion and health and um spirituality, they, they kind of all converge in even science, right? Science, religion, it, it was all sort of kind of a, the same thing way back when, where we have this kernel of this idea, like, it seems like a lot of early religious practices were sort of around health and, and kind of understanding just like evil spirits and not, you know, knowing that a lot of these things were caused by, and then, so it would make sense that fasting would be part of early religious practice because they would have noticed a, a benefit on health and vitality, and then it would have been, you know, incorporated. And then at some point over time, it got you know, lumped in with sort of what we see as religion. And then we've got sort of this other approach for science. And somehow these things got split off, you know, back back in time and fasting kind of went maybe in the wrong direction, but it's kind of coming back down and we're trying to find a place for it. it it's fascinating just to look at the way that we kind of view, view all these things. Yeah. Um, you, you, you see when you look through the history of fasting, um, these weird sort of intersections. And um, it seems to be mostly the, you know, the, the intersection between health and religion. Uh, it seems to be, you know, and, and science that people just sort of stumbled onto discoveries. They would be, you know, fasting for whatever religious purpose. 
And then they might notice, you know, this is speculation, they might notice that their headache went away or they had a fever and two days later it went away, whereas everyone else in their family was still suffering from the fever six days later. Um, but without a scientific method, you know, until we reached the age of reason in the 16th, 17th century or so, um, there was no way of synthesizing all these various strands of information in a way that would be lasting. So you would find these little discoveries about how fasting worked here and there, starting about, I don't know, 2,500 years ago or so, and they would pop up and people would adopt them maybe for even as long as a century or two, and then they would just disappear and go away. Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't until recently that we really began to figure out scientifically why fasting is doing what it's doing. Yeah, it is an amazing sort of process. And I know personally that there are some ancient Greek concepts that come to mind. One, one is this idea called veriditas. It's this, you know, healing force. When we see a cut in our finger and it heals up, that's, that's veriditas in action, right? It's this, it's this force of nature that our body has instilled that just is a healing power. It's, it's a force of nature. And when we, we fast, we're able to sort of tap into that on an internal level. Although we're not seeing it, it's not as obvious as a cut healing. It, it's happening at, at a deep level. Our, our digestive system is sort of being reformed and this, at a cellular level, some of the garbage is being cleaned out and sent away from, from autophagy, which was a Nobel Prize winning discovery in the 2000s, right? Like a fairly recent sort of mm -hmm. discovery. Yeah, the, the idea that you're hitting on that the body wants to heal itself is something that medicine has struggled to accept and I, I think still doesn't fully accept. Um, it's really rather incredible. And it's exactly as you say, every doctor in the world will, will accept that, you know, if you get a cut on your finger and you just leave it alone and don't let it get infected and let it scar over, it will scar over and heal itself. To tell them that an analogous process is going on inside your body um, when we get sick, uh, if we stop eating, sometimes it's fasting is not a cure all. It's not going to cure every disease. It's not going to, you know, cure your, uh, you know, breast cancer or prostate cancer or whatever. But sometimes with a great many diseases, it can reverse them partly or even entirely and cure them. That has been something that doctors have had an extremely hard time accepting for, gosh, I don't know, more than 2000 years. Um, and it's, it's understandable. You, 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 I mean, it's on the one hand, very condemnable. It's not understandable, but it, you do understand where it's coming from. Doctors have all this training. They're taught to go and we are going to be uh, the, the heroes of the story who come in and save this poor person from disease. And if you tell them, hey, if you just back off and let their body try to heal itself with certain uh, conditions, it will actually do a better job than whatever your intervention is going to do. And that was certainly the case throughout history. I mean, up until I'd say the middle of the 19th century, most scholars would say medicine did more harm than good. And then for another 50 to 75 years, it was about a 50-50 battle as to when you went to a doctor, whether they were going to do you more good or more harm. All that long period, you could have thrown out virtually all of medicine and just had fasting and you would have saved vastly more people and caused vastly less harm. Now, today it's more complicated. Western medicine's a beautiful and wonderful thing. It does some amazing you know, things. I have benefited from it. I mean, I've had... God, I don't know, eight, six or eight orthopedic surgeries in the last decade. Um, my torn ligament is not going to be healed by fasting. Um, so, you know, there are great things that Western medicine can do. However, it is still true that if you have rheumatoid arthritis 
or high blood pressure or type two diabetes. And I could go down a list of, you know, dozens of other uh, uh, conditions, asthma, allergies, skin conditions like, uh, you know, psoriasis and eczema and so on. Fasting can often do a better job than any pill or procedure that the uh, doctor is going to try to hand over to you or, or do for you. And that doctors refuse to accept what is now the very large growing body of science that supports these seemingly outlandish claims uh, is, is one of the most frustrating parts. But it just speaks to that, that very difficult uh, conceptual hurdle that you, you hit on so well, which is, uh, the body, if we leave it alone, wants to heal itself. It wants to be healthy and it can often do it. But that's just a hard thing for people to get. And it's such a beautiful and empowering message. Once you really wrap your mind around it, and especially once you have a firsthand experience of it, it's so amazing. It, it's so needed. In our, in our society right now, there are so many people suffering from every kind of health ailment imaginable, but just even in America, a first world country where our primary challenge is really with, with just an overabundance of food, which is just the solution is simple. It's not easy to learn how to do a multi-day fast or to, to you know, really get um, a sense of mastery on the skill of fasting, but it's simple. It, it's, it's doable. Anyone, almost anyone can do it. And I know personally, my, my experience, how I got into fasting was when I had COVID back in December 2020, I had a voice in my head tell me to fast for three days, and I wasn't wasn't able to taste or smell. Uh, aside from that, I was fine for the three days of fasting. I ate again, and I could taste the food, and it was amazing. And I thought, wow, there's something to this. I'm going to look into it more. Started studying, started practicing. Later on, I hurt my back. wasn't really able to work out without it hurting. It wasn't a real serious injury, but it was nagging me for months and I did a five day fast and afterwards I was able to climb rope without any kind of pain. And there, I'm sure there are competing views to say, Hey, you know, this was just a coincidence. It's just rest. But knowing what we both know about fasting, I'm hundred percent positive that the body healed thanks to me diverting my energy away from digestion and using it to heal as the body naturally does tapping into this healing mode that we all have within us. And I'm, I'm curious if you yourself has, have any similar healing stories or if you encountered anything sort of similar during, during your research. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the sort of stories you're telling are the stories that appear all throughout fasting. Well, I should say all throughout the modern history of fasting. Um, these sort of, you know, anecdotes of I had X condition fasted for five days or five weeks or whatever it was, and it got better. Those stories don't really start appearing until about the 19th century. But and it's not because they weren't happening before that. We just don't have the records of them. Um, and there wasn't sort of a kind of scientific mind to uh, to record these sort of case studies in a way that that, that makes sense to us today. However, for the last, you know, 200 years and certainly the last hundred years or so, yeah, stories after stories after stories, uh, like the ones that you're telling are, you know, all throughout the, uh, the history of, um, fasting. When you look at the writings of fasting doctors and the, uh, testimonials of their patients. So it's, and, and it's just, just overwhelming, um, the number of these stories. Um, so yeah, my own story, I, ha I do have a story like that. Um, and uh, as, as you know, I talk about it in the book and it's a, it was about fasting to overcome some uh, psychiatric and neurological uh, illnesses. 
Um, and it had never occurred to me to fast to try to overcome these because the long history of fasting is almost entirely talking about somatic illnesses, illnesses of the body, you know, the, the cardiovascular disease or the liver disorder or the, you know, the migraines, whatever. They're not talking about like psychiatric um, disabilities. So I had, I'm 52 now, um, from my early 20s, I had suffered from depression um, for, uh, well, gosh, for more than a quarter century. Um, and it was kept in check, um, with antidepressants, but the antidepressants are terrible. They've got, um, some often quite some, you know, debilitating side effects. Um, they also, um, tend to wear out. You don't go on one antidepressant, most people, and it works for the next 20 years and you're good. Um, they tend to, for whatever reason, just stop working after three or four years. Psychiatrists call it the, the Prozac poop out. Um, and so what happens when that happens is you go back into depression. Uh, it can be really severe. You know, I was nearly suicidal a few times. Um, and you're scrambling with your psychiatrist to try to find a new antidepressant that might work. Um, so, you know, I was just living in this just awful cycle for quite a while and um, getting a little worse. You know, the, the more times you have depression, the worse it tends to be. Um, so it was just, it just felt like I was on a, a really downward spiral. And then I had, I, I won't, you know, bore you with all my other conditions, but I had these other uh, conditions. A couple of them were just rare disorders. And the most interesting one, I think, was called idiopathic hypersomnia. Um, hypersomnia just means you're exhausted all the time. You want to sleep all the time. But the hell of it is, is that when you do sleep, it's not restorative. Idiopathic means the scientists and doctors do not know what caused it. They don't have a cure for it. Um, some poor people with this disease are sleeping 20 hours a day. They wake up and in the four hours that they're awake, they're stumbling around like the rest of us feel in those 30 seconds before you go to sleep at night where you just need toothpicks to prop your eyes open. That's their life. Um, mine wasn't that severe, but it was severe and it was getting worse with each year. I could not you know, try, try it, you know, feeling that feeling you feel 30 seconds before you fall asleep at night. Try being a parent to a, you know, 12 year old, uh, when you're doing that, try being a good husband or wife, uh, try being a good friend, uh, try being a, a good worker. Uh, my, my writing ground to a halt, my career ground to a halt. I could feel my mind almost, you know, this is going to sound hyperbolic, but disintegrating. My memory was getting worse. Uh, you know, I was getting depressed more. It was just, it was just horrible. And then, and, and as I say, it never occurred to me to fast for these disorders. But what, what saved me was about um, three or so years ago now, four years ago, um, I uh, put on too much weight over the holidays. Um, and so in uh, the new year, I decided to fast in order to take off about 15 pounds. I was going to fast a couple of weeks. Um, and, uh, within about three, four days, my idiopathic hypersomnia just started fading. I started becoming more alert and more awake. Um, and at first I didn't think a whole lot of it because with this disease, certainly the, the way I had it, you might get a good two or three days here and there, and then have a crappy two or three weeks and get another good day or two, and then have a terrible six weeks or whatever. So it, it fluctuated. But what happened was, as the fast went on, I, I felt better and better and better. And by the time I broke my fast, after two weeks, uh, I had spent my first week in, I don't know, decades without this hypersomnia. Um, and, you know, it's a long story that I 
uh, tell in the book, but the but the short version is is that I continued to I changed I changed my diet. Um, well, so I, I guess I will go into this, which is that <clears throat> fasting doctors have struggled with this quite, or they don't struggle anymore, but they used to struggle with the question of if we fast people and their illness goes away was maybe there's something about what they were eating that was either causing or at least contributing to the illness. And if so, when we refeed them, what do we need to feed them so that they will um, not relapse back into, into their illness? Um, and the vast majority of fasting doctors over the, the course of history settled on a very heavily plant-based diet. Um, and so I was already vegan, but uh, there are... Um, I wouldn't call myself a healthy vegan. I was eating a lot of processed foods um, with a lot of oils and added sugars and salts, and I cut all that out of my diet. Um, and when I did that, when I because I was terrified to break the fast and start eating again and see if my illness would come back. But when I did that, broke the fast, ate a much cleaner, much more pure diet, um, and the idiopathic hypersomnia just stayed away. And I was emboldened enough after a few weeks to say, well, why don't I try weaning off my antidepressants as well and see how that is. Um, and um, every time I'd done that in the past, I had crashed within a few months. Uh, it, this has now been three years and I am uh, off every single medication that I used to take. I don't take the sleeping pills anymore. I don't take the Xanax for, for anxiety anymore. I don't take the antidepressants. I don't take the stimulants that they give you for the hypersomnia, the Ritalin and so on to kind of keep you awake during the day. All that's gone. And, you know, so, so that's a very long way of answering your question. Yeah, I do have my own healing story. And, um, and uh, that story motivated me to then go looking into the science of what do we know about what fasting does for mental health and what's going on in the brain? Uh, and I found enough, you know, information there to, to write what I hope is a compelling chapter on that. It's a beautiful story and I really appreciate you sharing it and going on to then write a book, which, which I know is a difficult endeavor and, and challenging and a very good one at that, which, which is no easy feat. So it's, it's, it's all really powerful, especially given the state of the world where I, I know I've had my own struggles with, with depression personally, and it's, it's terrifying. It, it, I, I just mixed two words together, terrible and terrifying. It's horrible. It's, it's, it's all, you know, all the bad things. It's kind of just the worst, you know, way to be. And something like um, 80 to hundred million Americans are probably suffering from, from that on a, on a pretty regular basis, just a massive, massive number of, of our fellow human beings. And, and we've got this, this very accessible, free modality uh, you know, available, available. So I really do appreciate everything that you're doing and sharing in, in, in this realm. And one, one aspect of, of this, aside from some of the health benefits that, that I've really enjoyed while in the process of fasting is the just good mood, you know, steady energy, like you mentioned, it just feels great. And, and the calm clarity was something that I didn't expect, had never really experienced. It was this amazing sort of sense of, of lightness and just calm sort of the clarity it was the most beautiful part for me. Did, did you have an experience like that? It was, and it was almost spiritual in a sense. Did you get anything kind of in that realm? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had that experience before. I mean, I was in the case of the 
in the case of this healing fast that I was just talking about, I was so overjoyed with energy, uh, you know, finding myself renewed that it was less of that calm, meditative, spiritual feeling that you're talking about and more an exuberance that I hadn't felt in forever. So it was different. However, on other fasts, I have felt exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, as I've said, People throughout history have found that, and that's why fasting has been used in this contemplative, meditative way with religions. Um, it's interesting. There are um, I, I speak of two uh, large fasting clinics in the book that I go and visit and write a, a few chapters about. Um, and one of them is the True North Health Center in Northern California, which is America's oldest and largest fasting clinic. And the other is the uh, Buchinger Wilhelmi Clinic, um, in Germany, they also have a campus in Spain. They're Europe's uh, uh, largest and one of its oldest fasting clinics. They've been fasting people 100 years. I think they've fasted more than 250,000 patients. Bukinger Wilhelmi and True North have very differing philosophies about some aspects of fasting. Um, and it's interesting to sort of compare and contrast the two. At True North, they're really, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, medicalizing it. People come to them very sick, and their job is to heal these people physically. At Buchinger Wilhelmi, they have more of a kind of holistic view, for, for lack of a better phrase, um, where they are very interested not just in healing your body, but in also nourishing, they would say, your soul. Uh, I would say your psyche or your emotions, but we'll just we'll call it soul or spirit because that's what what they're what. what what they what they use, and and they believe that this spiritual component of fasting is extraordinarily important. And from a you know just medical point of view, I would agree with them. If you can nourish the soul at the same time that you're giving the body rest, and the body is trying to do these repairs, you're going to have a better you know more positive outlook. And we know from any number of studies that that helps with the healing process. Uh, setting aside the fact that you might you know, heal your diabetes a little better if you nourish your soul or something. It just feels good, doesn't it? That 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 restorative calm that you talked about. I, I did a, well, I believe it was a about a nine or 10 day fast at Buchinger Wilhelmi uh, a few years ago for the book. Um, and uh, I have not felt a sense of calm and being uh, at peace with myself Um you know, almost ever in my life have I, I've, I've almost never felt uh, that those feelings that deeply. And I'm absolutely certain it was the combination of the physical changes that fasting was bringing to me, while at the same time being supported with meditation classes or yoga classes, or just the opportunity to, you know, lie on my bed there and look out over the, the gorgeous lake that the, um, that the clinic sits on. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. This is something that's, uh, that's, uh, that's real. And I think we are wise to, um, to, to, to harness that while we fast, to take advantage of that contemplative feeling that can set in. Uh, and if we have the opportunity to, you know, engage that and nourish it, I think we should do it. I agree. And it reminds me of, of one small quote you included in their book from Upton Sinclair, who's saying, no phase of the experience surprises me more than the activity of my mind. I read and wrote more than I had dared to do years before. And this was a man, you said it was a terrifying thought since he wrote 90 books in, in 90 years. And 
you're, you yourself as, as, a, as a writer and a journalist, do you experience in sort of a, a boost in, in creativity or your productivity during the times when you are, when you are in, in the experience of fasting? Yeah, so I've I've seen it both ways. So, you know, some people get a clarity of mind that's sort of calm and contemplative, and it's sort of this gentle but um, not exuberant uh, wisdom, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, Upton Sinclair experienced a burst in productivity, and this man was insanely productive to, to begin with. And I've, I have, have seen any number of accounts of people who have experienced fasting that way. I have also experienced something like that as well. So during that, uh, just to go back to Buchinger Wilhelmy, during that time, I wrote, oh, the better part of one of the chapters of my book and, and, and thought it was just a really good stretch of writing. Quite often when writers have that experience, they go back three weeks later, later, look at what they wrote and find out it's crap. Um, you know, just, just, you know, you were, you were deluded by the feeling that you were feeling at the time. When I looked back on what I wrote, it was fantastic. It was some of the best material in the book. Um, so, and there are certainly, there are people who, who go to Buchinger Wilhelmy who are artists writers, composers, or whatever, uh, and they go there in order to write a chapter or to, uh, to to write a concerto or a symphony or whatever while they're partaking of a fast. So it, so it is a very uh, common thing. You certainly, um, you certainly have a lot of people uh, in, I, f- I would say, you know, I hope this isn't too offensive, but Silicon Valley bro culture who say that they fast and that is that is the reason they're fasting. Yeah, it may, it may help their health and so on. But frankly, what they're really looking to do is to be more rapacious capitalists. <laughs> they're really looking to crush the competition and they want to be keener and sharper at work. And the way that they're going to do this is by doing daily fasting where they restrict their eating window to a very narrow period each day, or maybe they do a periodic three-day fast or five-day fast or something. And they say, and I believe them, that it makes their minds sharper. They are less, you know, sort of, well, you know how it is. You eat a big lunch or something, you get sleepy after lunch. Well, you're eating less, so you don't get that. And you have this clarity of mind. Um, So yeah, you can certainly get that. Now, Having having said all that, while you can get that sharper, clearer mind, that's not how fasting always works. And it certainly uh, is more difficult to achieve that if you are in poor health. So people who go to fasting clinics who have, you know, uh, cardiovascular disease or type 2 diabetes or, you know, some, some really serious thing that they're trying to reverse, they often find fasting extraordinarily difficult. Um, and even though I'm a very experienced faster myself, um, I don't know if it's because I'm getting older, I'm 52 now, uh, or if it's because I, you know, don't have a whole lot of excess weight on me or anything. But when I fast, I often find it extremely draining these days. If I fast for a week, um, you know, I'm spending a lot of time in bed resting and so on. I might, you know, have some mental clarity, but mostly I'm just feeling exhausted. So it's an extraordinarily variable experience and we don't have great data (laughs) to say exactly why that is, except that in some people, it seems linked to the fact that their body's not very healthy. Um, All that said, the more difficult experiences tend to be with the multi-day fasts. People who are doing the daily fasting, narrowing their eating window each day, they tend to feel pretty darn good. You know, almost whatever health they're in, they they tend to improve and have more energy and, and do better. So that seems fairly consistent, anyway. Yeah, it is. It is 
kind of funny to think about it from that productivity angle. And it, it does almost remind me of something like a, a drug or a, or a psychedelic. I, I know I, I made a comparison between you and Michael Pollan earlier, and, and it really did remind me of a recent book by Pollan called How to Change Your Mind, which was all about the psychedelic revolution and how it were tapping back into some of these ancient ancestral plant medicines in a way that previous decades would have scoffed at. Now we're finding, oh my gosh, this is really helpful for depression and for PTSD and, and for all these conditions, amplifying creativity, productivity. And, and it really reminded me of fasting. And even my own experience with some psychedelics and my own experience with fasting, I do find parallels. Um, one obviously coming with a whole suite of health benefits, the other potentially not, not so much. But that's one of the beauties about fasting is learning to tap into that. And from an evolutionary angle, we've got, you know, our species where if there was no food, that's not a time to get weaker. It's a time to get stronger and sort of amplify because we're going to need to find food. Like this is, you know, the essence of survival now. So it's a really beautiful sort of process and, and practice to, to, to weave into life. Yeah. I've heard other people say similar things who have experimented with um, therapeutic psychedelics, that there are similarities between where your mind goes um, on, on, on both those, um, uh, states. Um, and I have, I've never done psychedelics myself, so I don't have any personal experience to speak of. I'm curious about them. I would be very interested in, in trying that with a, you know, a good psychedelic therapist at some point and seeing what it's like. But, um, yeah, I don't think it's, a, it's a coincidence because I think with, with psychedelics, with fasting and with meditation, there is at least the possibility in each of those of accessing a part of the brain that we are normally just so busy in our daily lives with. We've just ignored or we've just shut off. And there were cultures throughout, you know, for, for, for all of recorded history, we know that there were cultures who in different ways, usually in some form of uh, uh, meditation or re religious practice, but quite often, uh, particularly in South America, for example, with actual psychedelics and so on, trying to access that part of the brain. Now they thought it was a portal to the divine. They were, you know, looking to go, you know, closer to to God or their view of of the spirit world or whatever it was. Um, but it it was a similar. You, you get the feeling it was a similar sort of benefit or need that drove it and a benefit that they got from it um, that kept them doing it year after year after year for hundreds or even thousands of years. Um, it's it's a powerful ability to be able to step out of your sort of daily brain for, for you know, I don't know exactly what we would call it, but let's call it the daily brain and step into this more sort of, you know, less accessed brain. And, and the most skilled, you know, meditators can do that, you know, they can just flick a switch, right? Um, they don't need to, they don't need the crutch of a fast or the crutch of, of a psychedelic or something to do it. They can just, you know, do it because they're so skilled at it. Um, but, uh, but I think it's, my understanding is, uh, psychedelics can take you places that, you know, meditation can't even begin to touch. Uh, and that's truly one of the most interesting aspects about them, I think. So, uh, yeah, interesting. Yes. And I guess in the, just continuing along this, this pathway, you mentioned earlier the True North Health Center and the one in Germany was Buchold de Helme or, or something similar. I'm sure I butchered that. That's all right. The thought I had in mind is, is, you know, ideally we would want a lot more of these. This is almost like the hospital of the future or at least a different sort of alternative where, you know, if you've got certain conditions, okay, go to the hospital. You know, we need to take this bullet out of your leg versus, you know, 
this whole other range of other conditions, maybe this isn't best for, you know, hospital one, we're going to send you hospital B, you're going to relax, you're going to fast. Do you, do you see some sort of potential sort of, um, you know, future where, where that's the way our society sets up medical care? Yeah. I mean, the potential's long been there, right? Um, you know, the, here's, here's the way our, our medical system works in, to my mind. And it's that, um, we do not treat your disease as it develops. All right. If you get cancer, you didn't get it because it just sprung up six months ago, 99 cases out of a hundred. You got it because it was developing two years ago or five years ago or 25 years ago. It's been growing in you. Your cardiovascular disease, you started forming that when you were eating, you know, Doritos and Twinkies when you were 12. This doesn't, isn't something that, you know, just emerged when you were 52 uh, out of nowhere. And so our current medical system says, well, we'll just wait <laughs> until these things emerge. And then we're going to try to treat them in some way, not, not even necessarily to cure them. You go in with high blood pressure, they will tell you there's no cure. Yeah, the American Heart Association says high blood pressure can't be cured. Meanwhile, the True North Health Center is publishing studies where they reverse every single case of high blood pressure of someone who walks in their door and fasts for just 10 days. Uh, it, it's just astonishing. But that is uh, because we have set up our system so that we make money when we cure people. We don't make money. How does a doctor make money? By preventing disease. And in fact, I tell the story of this one um, guy who I met at the Bukandir Wilhelmi Clinic, another faster there, but he himself was a doctor and a professor. And he had, he had run a, uh, a national health agency at one point, and um, he had been in charge of part of a teaching hospital at one point. And when he was younger, he had tried to set up a preventive care you know, program in his hospital. This would have been probably in the 1980s you know, or thereabouts. And his, his mentors, his elder you know, physicians pulled him aside and said, Morgan, what in the hell are you trying to do? You're going to take away our patients. We make money by curing people, not by preventing them from getting diseases. And they forced him out. And I, I repeated that story in the book because I think that in a nutshell is what's going on with our system. Now, as you say, we have another way. We know that um, changing to a diet that's very heavy in plants can get rid of a vast number of diseases. And we know that uh, fasting can also prevent a large number of diseases and reverse a large number of diseases. So that's there and it's been on the table for, gosh, you know, there have been doctors in, in this country who've been trying to uh, put forth that model of medicine um, for 200 years now. The problem is when absolutely every financial incentive Right, it's set up so that everyone makes money by curing disease that has already formed, rather than preventing it from forming in the first place. Or, for that matter, let's you know a, a lot of what's going on at True North, they're curing disease once it's already formed. But what are they doing? They're just supervising the patients uh, in what amount to hotel rooms in their little apartment complex there that they where they have their clinic. Um, they're just supervising their patients, taking their blood and urine. You can't make zillions of dollars off of that. Where's the, you know, billion dollar drug? Where's the surgery? Where's the whatever? So, you know, yeah, the potential is is just right there on the table. But until the financial incentives change, uh, you know, where's where can we go? And 
how do we change those financial incentives? And of course, that's just the question of our particularly depre- uh, you know, particularly harsh form of capitalism that we live under. You could ask the same question about how are we going to get off of fossil fuels, right? When you have people, not people, corporations, you have you know, big pharma, you have big medical device, you have, you know, clinics, doctors, hospitals, all of whom are deeply invested in in this financial system and who get rewards for it. They don't have to be evil and awful and nasty to be perpetuating it. They're just earning their salaries, most of them. It's not like they're just horrid people, but because all their salaries are dependent upon it, gosh, how do you move to diet and fasting as as the answer? And you know, I, I, I wish I could say that I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm not, but I'd love to be surprised. And you know what? You, you've answered your own question in, in, in writing this book. And it's as small as it may seem that that is, that is the way that we, we do it. You know, we, we create art and, and we share our story and, and we do the best that we can to, to promote this truth to say, hey, this works. This works really well. This is awesome. And, and hopefully as time goes on, more and more of us will, will begin to turn on and, and, and drop into this, this healing state and share it with others as, as best we can in, in the most you know, persuasive and compelling way to share our story and, and to share your book and, and to share any art that we create that, that can say, hey, this is the light. This is the truth. This is amazing. And, it, and it's a much better way for us to go. And one, one thought that, that came to mind is, um, do, you know, do you know where the name fasting came from? Like, why, Do you know why we call it that? You know, I, I, I ought to know, shouldn't I? <laughs> that is a question that I never even thought to look up and I love the etymology of words. So I don't know why I didn't. Um, no, is the story answer. I don't know. <laughs> we, we're going to have to look, look this. I find it, I love words too. And, and it's just, it's, it was funny to me because I'm thinking like, well, it's, it's kind of more of like a slowing, in, like in my experience of it, the, everything kind of slows down. I guess maybe after you fast, you're like, a little bit lighter so you can run faster. Maybe that's why it's going back. <laughs> I think probably the etymology is more, you know, obscure than that and probably not related to anything we're saying, you know, today, but it would be interesting to know. Yeah. I, I you know, the other, the other part of this is I'm trying to just as a creative exercise, kind of think of a new way to frame it, like something new to call it, especially the, the longer fast to make it, because I, I do see it as a way of, amplifying of, of elevating of sort of activating and just finding some new way to like name it and frame it for people so they can get a better grip of understanding because almost everybody when i tell them about it they have like an adverse reaction to it like oh no like if i skip one meal i get cranky but let alone you know 20 meals in a row i would be i would be a mess and you know maybe but also maybe not maybe you could get off some of the you know, medications that you're taking, maybe you could heal this thing that's been bothering you for months and months. And it's, yeah. It, it is very counterintuitive. I, I find, you know, a couple of ways to, to get around that. It doesn't always get around it. I mean, I have people very dear to me who are very sick and I tell them, you know, there are ways that you could perhaps try to reverse some of that illness and fasting might be one and they just don't want to hear it. But for the people who have a little more open mind, I think simply explaining to them a little bit about the science, and it doesn't have to be all the science that's in my book, right? But what people do not understand is that when we give our bodies a break from the very, very heavy work, right, of digesting our food every day, processing the nutrients from those food, putting the nutrients to work in every cell of the body, what we don't understand is we give our bodies a break 
evolution has equipped them with a mechanism, this glorious mechanism, where they don't just sit around idle doing nothing. What they do instead, right, is they uh, initiate these uh, repair mechanisms that are just phenomenal. And it's stuff like, you know, fixing up um, uh, broken down and miscopied DNA. DNA is our instruction manual for everything in our body. If the instructions go wrong, we get diseased, we die early. It's increasing, you mentioned autophagy earlier, this process of recycling worn out broken down uh, cellular parts and, you know, breaking them further down into their constituent components and sending them on to become healthy, new, fresh organelles in other cells and so on. Um, you know, all these processes that, that go on are just, I think, truly amazing. And we know that they will spare us disease and maybe even in some cases reverse some diseases if we are already diseased. And when people learn about that, they say, oh, maybe this fasting thing isn't so crazy after all, right? <laughs> um, the other thing that I do, you know, when you get that look, you get like, oh my God, you know, skipping one meal is impossible. Skipping 20, you know, most people um, have some experience with exercise and they understand the basic principles involved in exercise, right? And that's that, look, if you have never gone for a run before, going for a jog around the block is going to seem impossible. So I tell them fasting is the same way. Just go, it's, you know, skip a meal. That's like walking around the block. What you will find is the same thing. You walk around the block today, you do it again three days from now, you do it again two days after that. Eventually you'll be jogging around the block and then you'll be jogging two blocks. And then, you know, maybe six months down the road, you're jogging three miles. And by the end of the year, you're running a 10K. And if I'd said to you, you wanna go out and run a 10K? You know, the year before, you would have said, absolutely not. That's insane. That's crazy. It's painful, it's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Fasting is the exact same way. Once your body gets used to being able to do a bit of it, it becomes very adept at it. Uh, the, the process becomes easier biomechanically for your body. Uh, and you can fast for longer periods with just, you know, very little difficulty most of the time. That's a beautiful way to put it. Absolutely. Just focusing on fasting as a practice, as, as a muscle, as, as something that can be iterated on and, and improved over time. And, and just like the runner's high, you can also learn to access the faster's high where it becomes this transcendent experience where life just seems a little bit grander in, in moments. And it's such a beautiful, such a beautiful practice. And I really appreciate that the work that you're doing to kind of share a light on, on all this. Um, is there any Anything else I sort of had in mind that you'd like to, to cover or, or talk about? Uh, no, I think you've covered a lot, Case. I think this, is, this has been great. I really enjoyed it and appreciate the time. I think everyone listening should, should go get a copy of the book, The Oldest Cure in the World by Steve Hendricks. And you've also got a lot of powerful interviews as, as well on other channels, diving deeper into many of the health, health benefits. Um, thank you. Thank you very much for, for joining me on, 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 this, on this episode. Really enjoyed speaking with you and hope you have a great rest of your day out in, out in Boulder. Great. Thanks, Case. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Take care.